Good morning. Um, welcome to another Facebook Live video. Um, it's early. I'm drinking coffee. I'm still in my dressing gown and uh, just getting ready for the day. Uh, this morning I wanted to talk a little bit about the area of religious sacrifice, particularly looking at the figure of Kierkegaard. So think of this as your Sunday morning sermon. If you listen to this, you don't have to go to church. Take the day off, go to the beach, go visit friends, you know, just enjoy yourself. Even if you're a pastor, just everyone will be fine. No one will miss you. Um, now, the reason why I'm thinking about this subject is because uh, today I'm doing the Omega course, uh, my online course, and we've been reading some of this book, Radical Theology and Emerging Christianity by Catherine Sarah Moody. This is an excellent book. Uh, Catherine Sarah Moody uh, is the foremost expert really on my work and the foremost critic of my work. Uh, she's followed um, everything I've done, my talks, my writings, and she engages very perceptively with it. And so this is the definitive book really if you want to understand my work and its relationship to wider theological and philosophical concerns. In fact, she's even doing a journal, a special journal with modern believing, with a number of mostly young scholars, um, dealing extensively with my work. And I respond to each of the essays uh, in that journal. And that will be coming out, uh, I think, later this year. Uh, by the way, some other great critics of my work, uh, and, and in addition to Moody, uh, is uh, like Gladys Gennell uh, from a sociological perspective. She has also followed my work very, very closely over the years, um, did active participant observation with ICON, and um, has a book out there that, that deals with my work with the wonderful scholar um, Gerardo Marti. Um, and also there is Suchil um, Alviso, and she's also done some excellent work, although um, most of it isn't out there yet. She has a an article in the journal that will be coming out. Um, so anyway, in this book, uh, there is a chapter, and sadly it costs a hundred bucks, so um, uh, it's hard to get. Although if you sign up to my course, you're gonna get a free excerpt. And also you can get the introduction for free online if you, if you look for it. But um, in the excerpt that we're looking at in the Amiga course, uh, Catherine Sarah Moody uh, offers a critique that my work, at least my early work, was ultimately uh, offering an ethical understanding of Christianity rather than a religious understanding. And she's referencing Kierkegaard here, so we're gonna do a little bit of Kierkegaard. Um, uh, so what, what's the argument? Well, the big thing is, and by the way, feel free to write your comments, your questions, feel free to say hi. Um, you know, uh, I can see everything and uh, will respond in, in kind. Um, the, the question that, that we have to ask is, you know, how do we understand, you know, the crucifixion? How do we understand the sacrifice of Jesus? This is actually the topic of my least read book. This is like my, my B-sides book, if it, an old vinyl. Nobody ever reads it, but some of my, the people who like my work think that this is my best work. But the problem is the cover. The cover's quite bad, but the title I think is very good. Fidelity of Betrayal Towards a Church Beyond Belief. I was quite happy with that. Um, but in this book, I look at Judas, and I look at how Judas has been betrayed, primarily in the biblical text. Um, 
in his portrayal of Jesus. Uh, in the early Gospels, he is seen as uh, looking for money. Uh, he wants uh, power, he wants cash, he wants to you know, buy a field, all of this, right? Uh, later on, you have him uh, being possessed by a devil. So he does it because the devil makes him do it. Um, and then the later uh, understanding of Judas in the later Gospels um, is that he's actually doing it as a friend of Jesus. There's these kind of hints that Jesus asks him to do it and he's, he's actually just fulfilling Jesus's wishes. And um, I kind of explore the latter, you know, this latter understanding of Judas. But this brings us to the notion of sacrifice. Uh, there are, for Kierkegaard, two primary ways of betraying somebody. <laughs> um, you can betray somebody aesthetically and what that means is you betray someone for your own gain, for money, sex, power, you know, whatever. So, so initially, Judas's betrayal is seen as an aesthetic betrayal. It's a betrayal uh, in which he kind of wants something for himself. Um, and, uh, you know, if you think of Christ's crucifixion in terms of this, you, you know, it would be, uh, you know, the crucifixion of Christ is used for political power. It's used to get back at enemies. It's used to make money, right? So you could say that there are people who use Jesus and sacrifice him all over again, in a sense. It can interpret Christianity and aesthetic means prosperity, uh, kind of a way of a way of kind of getting one over in your enemies. I take no pleasure in the fact that you're going to go to hell and burn. You know, it's like it's a it's a weapon. Um, it's something that is selfishly useful for us. Uh, then for Kierkegaard, there is the ethical betrayal. And an ethical betrayal is where you betray an individual for the sake of a universal. So instead of betraying an individual for the sake of your own personal singular desires, you betray an individual in order to, uh, uh, or for the sake of something greater, maybe turning in your child because your child has done something very, very bad. You're in a sense betraying your child for a greater moral purpose. Uh, maybe your child, you know, kind of is, is selling drugs or something like very dangerous drugs. And, you know, you feel that it's your ethical duty to, to you know, um, do something about that. Or uh, to take a more classic example, Julius Caesar is killed as an individual and then becomes Caesar. Caesar becomes a universal. It's, the, it's a ruler. It's a way of ruling. So the individual Julius Caesar dies for the sake of the, the rise of a political order of Caesar. Now, this way of understanding Christianity is the common one. That Jesus' sacrifice is a way of atonement, of reconnecting us with the universal, with God above, with the way things are, with the ultimate system of meaning and justification. So um, Jesus killed God, sorry, God killed Jesus. God killed Jesus um, as a way of reestablishing our connection with the universal. The individual Jesus was sacrificed to reestablish our connection with the universal. Or if you go with more radical uh, views, um, you know, God himself changes in the crucifixion. So as Tony Jones in the book, um, did God kill Jesus, talks about this as the crucifixion being something that actually transforms and changes the very nature of the universal itself. And uh, this is 
you know, kind of close to process theology and whatnot. But this is all, interestingly for Kierkegaard, the ethical sacrifice is where basically religion is today. Religion, religion understands Christianity as a type of ethical system that reconnects us with the universal. But Kierkegaard is like totally hardcore, um, totally punk, totally kind of like uh, wants to go to something else entirely. And he talks about the religious sacrifice. Now the religious sacrifice will sound the exact opposite of what we think of when we use the term religious sacrifice. <laughs> because how we understand religious sacrifice in the church, in the actual existing church, is the ethical, the ethical sacrifice. But Kierkegaard says the very foundations of the Jewish and Christian tradition is on a rejection of the ethical. And he, he connects this in fear and trembling with uh, Abraham and Isaac, where Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac, uh, when he goes up to the mountain, he's about to kill Isaac and he's prepared to do it, is a rejection of the, the ethical itself, the universal itself. Because the universal message is you shouldn't kill someone who's innocent. Um, Kierkegaard calls this the teleological suspension of the ethical. And what he means is at this moment for Abraham, the whole system of meaning of what, what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is bad begins to crumble. Um, and Kierkegaard finds this endlessly fascinating. Fear and trembling is a, is a constant kind of return to this crazy sacrifice and his attempt to be true to it. He thinks that Christianity is, is a betrayal of this, is constantly trying to get away from the terror of this idea, reducing Jesus to an ethical teacher, to a moral teacher, to um, this conservative kind of individual wanting to connect us with the harmony of the one, right? So for, for Kierkegaard, he says, you know, whatever you think about Jesus, please don't think of him as an ethical figure. You know, that's the worst thing you can do, you know, <laughs> which is the very thing that people do. He's got, oh, I'm not really into Christianity anymore. I'm not really religious, but I think Jesus is a great spiritual teacher. You know, he's, he, he, he articulates great kind of, you know, spiritual truth. For Kierkegaard, that's like, ah, that's the worst, <laughs> the worst of all, because he sees Christianity in Christ as the rupturing of meaning. Uh, I think we talked about this in another Facebook Live where we, you know, I talked about parables as rupturing our understanding of what is right and wrong, what is good and bad, what is pure and impure, who is in and who is out. That um, the discourse of Jesus is constantly not giving us these wise, pithy sayings, but, but confusing all the wise, pithy sayings that we have. Because the funny thing about wisdom sayings, um, I almost started a Twitter account doing this actually, is you can, whatever wisdom saying you can find, you can find another one that says the exact opposite. Now, and now I'm online, I'm not gonna be able to think of any, but you kind of go like, uh, too many cooks spoil the broth, many hands make light work. You know, so, uh, you know, that's a very benign example, but um, there's ones about, you know, you know, the tall poppy gets cut uh, or the, and an alternative one saying basically get up there and get out into the world and, you know, make a difference. So um, this basically means that in, in, in the church that we know today, God killed Jesus. And we're trying to figure out why God killed Jesus. Um, the universal sacrifices the individual to reconnect us with the universal. Uh, it was Trip Fuller who gave me the idea of uh, the idea that I'm saying uh, did not that God killed Jesus, which is what Tony Jones is saying, but that Jesus killed God. 
I think this is much more Kierkegaardian. In other words, actually how we should read the crucifixion is it that this is a, not a reconnection with the universal, but a rupturing of the universal, a breaking of the universal. Now, the, the way to understand this is think about all the different atonement theories that are out there. Uh, ransom theory, substitutional theory, recapitulation theory, moral um, victory, moral imperative or whatever uh, theory. And not to mention the East, Eastern Orthodox Church, the Catholic Church, Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, or identity, uh, identity um, uh, theories of the atonement as well. You know, there's a proliferation of these understandings of atonement, um, all trying to understand, you know, give meaning to this phenomenon. But in a sense, you could argue that the truth is in the fact that there are so many atonement theories and none of them seem very persuasive. In fact, some of them seem positively unpersuasive because they rely on historical ideas that are no longer meaningful to us. Um, that actually the, cru the crucifixion defies meaning, it ruptures meaning, it's, it's meaningless, um, it's, it's the destruction of everything we think is moral and is good. Because as I mentioned um, last week in, in, in this Facebook Live, the crucifixion meant that you were cursed of God that meant that you were no longer a political citizen. You were a nobody and a nothing, crucified naked outside the city. It wasn't simply a biological death, it was a symbolic death. You were symbolically killed and then it was materially killed. So it was about um, pain and torture and it was about biological death, but there was an additional dimension to crucifixion and it was symbolic death. You, you no longer were covered by kind of systems of meaning. Um, but then what we've done is we've rendered the crucifixion into a system of meaning, into a way of saying oh, at the end of the day, you know, everything will be fine. Now, reason, so if you've got that, you've got three different types of understanding of the, of the crucifixion. You know, they've got the aesthetic, you know, Jesus died for me. I know and says I'm going to use that in order to get whatever I can out of it. Um, there's the ethical, Jesus died to restore um, us to a universal system of right and wrong, good and bad, that we are kind of within and understand ourselves within. And then Kierkegaard brings out this third crazy one, which is the absurd. Um, if you remember what we talked about before on the absurd, the absurd is the experience you have as a meaning desiring being confronted with a universe that defies meaning, that doesn't give you meaning. That's the experience of, of the absurd, both in Kierkegaard and in Camus. So um, the crucifixion, the religious sacrifice is an encounter with the absurd. It basically tells us that the way we think of the universal, the way we conceive right and wrong, good and bad, pure and impure is being ruptured, recreated. It's not something that falls from the sky. So we can say, oh, well, it's not me that thinks that being gay is wrong, for example. It's, it's God that thinks it. You know, it's not me that thinks, uh, you know, that um, uh, if, if you're a woman, you're lesser. You know, that's, that's God, right? Um, so you don't take responsibility for what you're saying, right? You kind of, it, it's something above. But in this idea of, of the religious sacrifice, um, it is Christianity and its connection with the absurd, which means we have to rethink the way we understand all of these categories of inside and outside and take responsibility for them. That's primary. Before you even think about 
what is the right view, the first step is just taking responsibility for the view that you have, and that's radical. So in other words, before you decide what the right answer is to something, what, you know, what the ethical answer is to something, you have to become an ethical subject. To become an ethical subject means to take responsibility for your views and not put it on to somebody, other, somebody else. You know, oh, my parents made me do it, my God made me do it, whatever. Where you crazily go, this is my perspective, you know, and I take responsibility for it. And if it goes wrong, I can't blame somebody else, right? I have to blame myself. <laughs> um, so that's becoming an ethical subject. And then, of course, there's the difficulty of working out what the right answer is. But, but Christianity for Kierkegaard is getting at that level. We go, we create the universe, we create this world of meaning, we have to fight for justice, we have to take responsibility for when things seem to go wrong and violence is done to others, and not say, oh yeah, that's okay, because that's just the way it is, but rather say, crap, my views have led to that. And when you do that, it makes you, makes you more go, I should rethink my views. If your views are, are, are fallen from the sky, you can't do that. But if they're not falling from the sky, if you're a half decent person, you have to go, I might have to rethink how I voted with, you know, the UK referendum. <laughs> That's my responsibility. It wasn't God that I was like, I have to take responsibility for that. Um, look at that. I brought in a little bit of contemporary politics. Eh? Um, so what Catherine Sarah Moody is saying is that actually some of my work, especially my early work, is actually at the, the level of the ethical and not the religious. I talk about betraying Christianity, questioning our meaning, but it's always in the service of Christianity and the service of meaning. So she calls it perverse, which is the technical term for it. Yes, this is a perverse reading. And, and most, to be honest, most books that you get about doubt, for example, is perverse. So there's a whole pile of books who want to mention names, but there's books out there that talk about how having doubts are good because God can cope with them. You know, doubts, you know, you may, you, may have, you may doubt God, but God doesn't doubt you and God accepts your questioning. That's perverse in the sense of you're going, well, I can question, but it's a small question with a meta belief over the surface. So it's, it's like being on a roller coaster. You experience the danger without having it. It's the dark night of the soul with the nightlight switched on, right? Um... So most, most work on Christianity that we see in the popular religious world is, is technically perverse. And Catherine Sarah Moody is saying that, you know, my early work as well falls into that. Um, and I can understand why she see, thinks that, because a lot of my work is about showing that questioning, um, uh, uh, act, you know, uh, self-questioning, questioning the divine, all of the wrestling with the divine, all of that stuff is actually inherently part of the Christian tradition. And there's always a danger when you say that, that you fall into this perversity. But what I've tried to do in my later work is clarify that I think that this, this goes further, that we have to take Kierkegaard's notion very, very seriously. We have to see Christianity is connected to the existential and the absurd. And, um, and that that's the direction that I think is the, is the radical direction for Christians to go. So um, if you want to join us uh, to see, you know, go more in depth with this conversation, sign up to my Omega course. Um, or if you're in L.A., um, I'm speaking this afternoon um, or this morning uh, at Sunday service. So you're welcome to join us there. It doesn't cost anything, obviously. 
Um, but let's see if anyone's got any questions, because I think that's all pretty heavy for a Sunday morning. I apologize. Um, oh, uh, Terry Lynn is saying, I'd love to do your next book cover. Well, you know, maybe, or if I'm guessing you're a graphic designer, put some clues on, says Matt, you cheeky man, you cheeky, I bet you mean the opposite. That's called reaction formation, where someone very adamantly says the opposite of what they really desire, you know. Um, I would never want to be rich. It's terrible, right? You go, oh, why, why are you always talking about you never want to be rich? It's probably because you want to be rich. So Matt, we all know what's going on in your dirty little mind. Um, do, do, let's see. Nice loungewear. Thank you, Jake. Uh, there's Charlie. It feels like we've suspended the ethical in the UK right now. I wonder where the betrayal lies or uncovers truths in a post-Brexit uh, church without rendering it into a system of meaning. Ooh, yeah, I'll have to think about that. That's a complicated question because you're saying you feel that like we suspended, suspended the ethical. Mm. I'd have to hear more about what you think. I think you're probably onto something there, but I would need to be sitting down and chatting with you in person to, to grab that. Uh, let's see. Do you think Kierkegaard's or Dislentio's yes, ethical in fear and trembling? Is, oh, you're asking a philosophical question. Yes, is a Kantian universal? Or, you know, no, that's going to be too heavy. I'm already, this is already too heavy for a Sunday morning, Jake. It's terrible. Um, the 52% made us do it, yeah. Uh, okay, Mike's saying, I uh, love what you're saying, but will it grant traction? People seem to demand certainly not ambiguity. Th this is, okay, this is a good question to maybe finish on. Um, Mike, you know, it depends what day you catch me on, maybe and what, what I'll say here, but... I generally think that there is so much of a tendency for us, for me, to want meaning and certainty and to avoid the absurd. Um, and that's true, I think, for most of us, that we are meaning-creating beings and that those experiences that rupture our meaning, whether it's a divorce, losing our job, becoming homeless, a mental health issue, these things that happen in our lives that begin to rupture the way we see the world, these crucifixion moments. Um, we, tr we often, we try to avoid them. We, we, we sometimes change our beliefs. One belief's not working that well. So instead of like changing how we engage with the belief, we just change our belief. So we hold a new worldview that we hold in exactly the same way as the last one. So if there's two of us debating about say the existence of God and we simultaneously convince each other then we move to two different sides of the platform, but we basically hold the beliefs in the same way. At one level, we've completely changed our beliefs, but we hold those beliefs in the same way, as in, in a way to avoid a confrontation with the absurd. For someone like Paul Tillich, you're not, you shouldn't primarily be wanting to change your beliefs, but how you interact with your beliefs um, in a way that makes them uh, open to doubt, unknowing, etc etc so it's not for Kierkegaard the level of what you believe it's how you believe and and I think it's very difficult because most of us you know in most of our lives I've tried to avoid that but what I think is that there's a little part of all of us that um, can go there and that's what this this Christianity is about is about you know seeing that as the place of life whereas we think that losing our life in the absurd is going to destroy us that's where we gain our life 
And we think that if we can keep hold of our life in this meaning structure, you know, that's the way to do it, but we lose our life there. So um, it's, uh, it's always gonna be a battle. And, and it, it's more like, a, that's when psychoanalysis has the same issue, you know, it's always trying to go right. The little places where things break apart, which is the Freudian slip, is the place of truth. And we need systems in place that help us really delve into that. Some cultures are better than others. Sometimes in history are better than others, but it'll always be easier to not take this journey. Yeah, but Christianity, you know, it's the narrow path, as they say, it's not the wide path, it's the narrow path. Um, Mark, if someone, is, if someone is going through a personal rupture of meaning, what resource would you point them to, to work through this rupture so as to lead to personal transformation? Brilliant question. Because the, the first thing one does is either tries to hold, so for, let's take a very concrete example. Someone loses their job um, and they, you know, very quickly lose their family, they become homeless. Um, the first temptation is to hold on to the original worldview. Maybe they think that homeless people are lazy, um, don't work, uh, are weak. Um, and for a while they might hold on to that world of meaning, who's inside and who's outside, even though they're now on the outside, they hold on to it. Because just having meaning is better than having no meaning at all. Or eventually they might start taking that other system of meaning and start judging people who work nine to five jobs, settle down with a family, look, they're the living dead, like they don't know how to live life. You create a new system of meaning. But both of them, I think, are ways to protect ourselves from the truly radical move, which is to, to kind of begin to see the constructed nature of our positions. Um, you know, so it's very hard to do. One of the things I'm a big advocate of is doing it in community. That when, for example, your religious worldview starts to break down, it might be that you went to an evangelical seminary, you grew up in an evangelical church, and you believed it all the way until, until you got a book that began to you know, ask serious questions. You met somebody who, who, who brought up doubt and unknowing in you that you didn't even realize you had. So your whole system of meaning is beginning to collapse. Um, and that's the point where you have to leave the church and feel isolated. So what I try to do is set up communities where those people have others who they can work with. Because when you've got other people who are doing it, and by the way, using music, comedy, art, in order to facilitate and go deeper into that, because a lot of comedy and art is, is, is designed to help you confront the absurd. Um, so to do it in community so that you don't simply run to another system of meaning, another snake oil salesman who's on the corner of the street saying, ah, no, the answer is take these drugs or get famous or go to this church or, you know, whatever it is to avoid that, to find community of other people who are going through this disruptive process. For me, the church is the place of the absurd. It's the place where the community gathers to stay true to this deconstructive Christ crucified event, um, which is what the Last Supper is, gathering together around the shared loss of God. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's my big thing is find people who are on the same journey as you, who want to remain faithful to this, that is church. And, um, and if you don't have that, then send out a flare, you know, on Facebook, on Twitter, uh, contact me if you're going to set something up somewhere and I can I can put it on my Facebook page. Um, 
try to find community. That's what I did in Belfast. I felt alone, so I put up a flare and I started an event. I pretended I knew what I was doing. People showed up, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, and we built a community, community that lasted 12 years and still exists in, in the friendships to this day. All right, um, we're in 28 minutes. Maybe I'll do one more. Uh, Lisa, can you explain on what you mean when you say it's not about what we think, but how we think about what we think? <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's well put. Um, so you think about it, like most mostly what happens is at the level of what you believe. So for example, if you kind of, you know, you know, grew up in an evangelical world and that's what you believe. And then you confront kind of new atheism, for example, and you find that very compelling. You sometimes move from this belief to this belief um, and you hold it in, in the same way. It functions in the same way um, as a defense against really encountering lack or one religion to another religion or one philosophy to another philosophy. Things change. You you change your fashion, for example, but you don't change the fact that you like fashion. Um, there's this, there's a change at the level of what, but you hold it the same way, kind of literally, basically. Now, for Kierkegaard and for like someone like Tillich, what Christianity is asking us is to change how we hold our beliefs, because we're all thrown into the world with beliefs. Like you, you're not really responsible for what you start off with. Um, you're responsible for what you do with what you start off with. Whenever you become a critical thinker, maybe it's 14, 17, 20, whatever age it is, you're already full of ideas. You've already got a worldview. And it would be different if you grew up in China or in Ireland or whatever. And uh, so this is kind of arbitrary in a sense. You're thrown into the world with a set of beliefs. Um, and for Tillich, the first thing to do is go, okay, these are my way of interacting with the world. I'm going to treat them symbolically as symbols, as way of ways of participating in reality and in the transcendent. And, and then you can also begin to pick away at things that you think are good and you, things that you think are bad. That's at the level of the what, and that's important. But the first change is at the level of the how, that, you know, do your beliefs um, protect you? from looking at the difficult things, doubt, unknowing, ambiguity, trauma, or do they help you look at those, wrestle with them, bring them to the surface and work through them? Um, and that's the level of the how. So how do your beliefs function? And um, uh, that's kind of what I'm saying is in, in the crucifixion, it doesn't give you a new what to believe. It doesn't, doesn't give you a new worldview, what's called worldview Christianity, which is very popular in America, especially after the work of someone like Francis Schaeffer, who was very into worldview Christianity. Actually, the crucifixion doesn't give you a worldview. It corrupts and disrupts and puts an incendiary device in your worldview, blows it apart, and helps you encounter your human, all too human reality. Um, and so you still maybe hold on to what you believe, of course, but you hold it differently. And now it's no longer that which divides, um, that which you kind of use to bash people over the heads. It's what you use to interact with the world. This is basically whenever Jesus says, the Sabbath uh, was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, right? What he's saying is, you think that the, the Sabbath laws and all of that, that you hold on to, and if someone doesn't, doesn't fit in with those, you bash them over the head with them. But actually, these Sabbath laws were created in order to help people flourish 
And if people aren't flourishing, then you've got to rethink this. <laughs> That's the ultimate idea that, um, that your laws and your ideas uh, need to always be rethought in relation to how they hurt or, or help other individuals. But if you're putting other individuals into your ideology, um, then you're holding it as an absolute, uh, as a universal, and that's deeply problematic. Okay, I hope um, that was of some use to, or is interesting to some of you. Um, thanks for joining me. Uh, I'll try and check in in the next few days. As I say, sign up to the Amiga course if you want more, or I'm gonna be in lots of places in the next couple of months. I'm going to South Bend uh, next week. I'll be in Minnesota in a few weeks. I'm gonna be in, um, in the Netherlands in August. I'm gonna be in Australia in September, in Detroit in October, doing stuff in LA in November. So, uh, you know, check my website. If I'm around, um, come see me and uh, I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.